friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. Amazingly, we've made it to episode 50. And this week we got Dan Bull. And the intro I use every week on my podcast is from Julius Caesar, which ended up going on the Dewey Decibel System, which Dan Bull ended up being on, which ended up being a music video on his channel. And we ended up getting 50,000 views in like a week, which is pretty awesome for Shakespeare rap <laughs> to, to kind of blow up on YouTube like that. So thank you, Dan, for being on this week's episode, for doing the song and the video. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But this week's episode is brought to you by the following Patreon supporters. Ian at Ah Real Records. Ian put out my greatest hits on CD. Thank you, Ian. Diane and Rexy T. Jones. Those are some of the new subscribers and some of the old ones. Brady, Mike, and Damien. Thank you all for supporting the podcast, the music. I dropped two new songs a month. I don't know if you knew that, but there are 82 songs on Patreon. And if you sign up, you get all the old ones, and then you get two new a month. And I'm doing a series coming up on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm going to do each of the characters, story about each. So it's kind of like a special Marvel album on Patreon. So patreon.com slash mclars. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a comment. Please leave a review. Please log into your friends' iTunes accounts. Leave a comment. Leave a review because it helps the podcast grow. So I'm reading this great book right now. It's by Ross Anderson. It's called Pulling a Rabbit Out of a Hat, The Making of Roger Rabbit. And it's an amazing history that goes back and talks about Disney before the project came into the studio, how they made it. It's a very long book with tons of interviews, and I love it. So as many of you know, I'm a huge fan of that era of Disney animation and that era of Hollywood and just the story behind that amazing movie. So I really love this book. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of it. And it was actually published by uh, University Press of Mississippi. So it's kind of like an academic journal. But the dude, Ross Anderson, he wrote a piece about Roger Rabbit for Disney's magazine, D23, which is their fan magazine. And so they asked him to write a whole book about it. I'm loving it. It's been a great summer. My wife is a teacher, so she has a summer off. So we've been all over California. We're going hiking, going kayaking. I've been working on music. I've been getting ready for these tours coming up. Oh, my gosh. So I'm touring this fall in the U.S., East Coast with Aquabats, West Coast with Oakley Doakley. So let me tell you some of the dates. Start September 11th in Indianapolis. Then we go to Chicago. We play the uh, after party for Riot Fest. Detroit, Buffalo, Charlotte, Richmond, Boston, Asbury Park. And then we end the 20th in Brooklyn. And then I go out with Oakley Doakley. It goes on October 4th, San Diego, then Costa Mesa, which is like Orange County, then San Francisco on my birthday, holler October 6th, then Bellingham, then Port. that's Washington. That's like up towards the top of Washington, then Portland, then Seattle. And then we go over to Denver. And then... I don't have anything going on, but to play a New Year's festival in Monterey. Enough about that. You are tuned in. I'm sure there's a lot of new listeners this week because Dan Bull has a very big audience. And I want to talk about my Dan Bull stories very quickly. I'd heard about him years ago. A promoter for Glasswork, a UK promotions company, played me some of his stuff when I was over there. And I was like, this dude is great. And Dan doesn't really play many shows. He His first show he ever did, he played with Akira the Don, who DJed for him. And Akira was actually the first internet interview I ever did in England when Radio Pet Fencing came out, which is crazy, small world. And Akira opened for us 2011 with MC Chris and Weird Science. So it's a very small world. But Dan's stuff is smart. It's funny. It's well-produced. His videos have just gotten better and better. And uh, I asked if I could interview him because I did a, we'd been in touch over the years. He'd heard about me because a friend of his, this guy, Mr. Shouto, opened for me in Oxford. 
And Dan thought that was kind of cool. And I thought that was kind of cool too. Shout out to Mr. Shadow. Uh, he had a great YouTube video called Are You Stupid? Anyway, so we'd been in touch, you know, it's like one of those things where you're mutual fans. And I did a tiny short verse for his Fortnite song where he had a hundred different rappers. And then I asked Dan if he would be on our Julius Caesar track and he killed it, so to speak. He plays Cassius. And um, then we were, so we did the interview and then we were like, we should do a video because he has this like really cool video setup. He produces other artists. He talks about that in the interview, how he's like enjoying working with newer, younger artists. And got a great reaction now shout out to nick j henderson who kind of does all dan's videos works with him helps to manage dan's career and helps with the content flow and uh fresh nut media shout out to them so this is my interview with dan bull we filmed it in birmingham he was a little sick i edited out some of the sniffles and you know i usually edit out the like things that slow the podcast down there was nothing very slow about this. We have a funny story about Goldie looking chain. We take this long detour to talk about language and the Vulgate and Latin and Anglo-Saxon and French and how that all influences everything and his last name is origin. And then we bring it back to Goldie looking chain. It's like the funniest detour of all time. But Dan, thank you for being on the podcast. You're a great dude. I hope we can do more stuff and uh, enjoy. Here we go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with legendary rapper, YouTuber, artist, Dan Bull, here in Birmingham, England. Hello, Dan. Hello, and I'm here with legendary artist, YouTuber, rapper, MC Lars here in Birmingham. Hello. Hey, <laughs> thank you for introducing me. That's sweet. <laughs> I'm ill, by the way, so um, there may or may not be lots of coughing in this, depending on how good Lars's editing is. Well, I've heard your lyrics. They're definitely ill. Hey. <laughs> That's one of the oldest puns in, in hip-hop, right? I know, I know, I know. Um, or, yeah, oh, yo, his verse was sick. We should take him to the hospital. Yeah, again and again. I've heard that in so many different tracks. I think uh, I'm guilty of using it. It's like a trope. It's like a good pun or a good play on words. Are like, yo, my rhyme's so deaf, you can't even hear me. Yeah. Those are, it's like, it's like, it's like the blues progression rap, right? Like right. Certain tropes are timeless. <laughs> yeah, they make you feel comfortable and safe. You know, you know what zone you're in. And it's like a base to work. And then and then the more abstract and weird lyrics can come back to that safe zone. You only, yeah. That's what I love about your music. We're diving right into it. You are a true fan of hip hop. You're not, you don't do it as a novelty. You don't do it as like strictly as a parody. You are someone who loves hip hop and you're a fantastic rapper. And like, that's, I think what a lot of your success comes from your respect of the craft. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I, I used to, I used to listen to rap. When I was a kid, I remember like I I didn't have CDs or anything, but the, the, whenever it was on in a movie or something, I would think, "What's that music? That's really cool music." I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, I think the first the, my first memory of any rap was have you have you seen um, Robin Hood Men in Tights? Right. There's a weird scene in that where his merry men all come together and do like a, a hey nanny nanny and a ho yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah, and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I really like this. You know, that's Dave Chappelle. Leading the rappers. No way, really. Yeah. I did not know that. I did not know that. Well, I, I got to thank Dave Chappelle then for for kickstarting my love of this this genre. Um, that would have you would have been what like like six or seven when that came out. Yeah, I was. I don't know my exact age. I, I was a kid, and um, yeah. So and then I think I got into I started getting into video games, and one of the games that had a really good soundtrack was 
the first um, Grand Theft Auto game. Mm. Did you play that? Yeah. Yeah. Course, yeah. So, so and and weirdly, all the music in that I think was actually made by like uh, by a guy in Scotland who was just on the on the team um, of Rockstar Games or DMA or whatever they were called back then. Um, but he like made some really authentic sounding music in loads of different genres, and that I was so inspired by that. And I think that was a, a huge influence on me to get not only into rap but like EDM which it wasn't called EDM back then I think it was just mm. called dance music but I used to like things like um, Fatboy Slim Chemical Brothers The Prodigy I used to any, anything really that just had cool sounds and break Basement beats Jacks. And things. I liked Basement Jacks yeah. yeah Basement Jacks were a little bit more in the direction of kind of clubhouse music right but um, they were really cool as well because they just had so many different sounds and influences I think when I think I like music that sounds like um a melting pot of different things that have all been thrown in and maybe they shouldn't fit together, but they right. do. Um, <laughs> I, I, because I grew up in a town as well, uh, like a very white town, a very middle-class town. And most people just listen to kind of indie rock music. And that, it was okay to me, but it didn't really get me excited. And I, I just heard this, this weird music from America and from a cultural background that was nothing to do with me. And it was, it was kind of exotic and exciting. And I just, I just really liked that. You, did you grow up in the Midlands? Yeah, yeah, I grew up not far from here. So the, 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 we're in Birmingham now, which is like the second biggest city in the UK. And my my mum's from Birmingham, but I grew up in a small town just outside called Bromsgrove. It's just a sleepy commuter town. It was It's actually really nice, but for someone growing up, it's kind of boring. There's not much for young people to do there. Well, that's what's interesting, Dan, like about the, talking to people who've discovered hip-hop. The cultural history of hip-hop is that it was created by these people who were kind of geographically marginalized and socioeconomically marginalized, like in the Bronx in the 70s, where it was like removed from everything. So they were creative and created their own culture, right? Right. And putting their influences together. And it seems like people or, yeah, anyone who's who's really a f can appreciate hip hop is anyone who has kind of a different perspective or comes from a maybe geographically removed place or you know, an outsider kind of perspective. Like that's the stuff that seems to at least resonate with me. I feel like, you know, I'm like you, would you agree? I, I think so. Yeah. Cause I, I especially always felt like an outsider cause I'm on the autistic spectrum, which I didn't know when I was younger, but I always was just felt kind of a bit like an alien compared to everybody else. And, and so, um, but with, with autism, it's a, it's a huge spectrum of conditions or, or, or uh, symptoms where it can range from, very low functioning to high functioning and i th i think i'm only I, I i don't have proof or evidence of this but i think that part of the reason why i really like words and why i'm really good with words is because of that because i've always been into like long weird long sentences and words and phrases and wordplay and the way they inter interact and interlock together and i think when i heard rap and especially some of the more complex rap that that i started to hear in the late 90s Eminem was one of those, which is, is probably a cliche that Eminem got a white guy into rap, but he was, you know, his lyrics are amazing. Uh, and I heard that kind of thing and just thought, this is, this is, it kind of lit a fire in my brain. Mm. Um, what was the first Eminem record you like fell in love with? I used to listen to a, a radio show called, um, I don't know what the show was called actually, the, but the DJ was called Tim Westwood. I don't know oh, if right. you've heard of him. Yeah. Um, uh, and he had like a hip hop show every, I think it was every Friday night. And I used to listen to that. And then this track came on called My Name Is 
by this guy called Eminem. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know he was a white guy or anything. Um, knew nothing. And it was just, it just sounded like a cartoon that had come to life. Right. But with all these kind of crazy, complicated rhyme schemes and weird, silly voices and punchlines. And I loved it straight away. I didn't know what it was, but I press. I remember pressing record on the, t on the cassette tape that I had ready for tracks that I liked. Yeah. So that one got like, I recorded the, after the first 10 seconds, I had the track and kept replaying it. Was it the version that had like, um, there's like the radio version, the album version, and there's that super like filthy one that came out. Oh, it was the, it was the cleanest of clean versions. Right. This was the BBC, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Tim Westwood was one of the first people over here to premiere Eminem then, you think? Probably. I, I can't, I don't know if he was, but I know that um, there are some amazing recordings when Eminem and uh, Proof both came over on tour and they, they did like, some really good freestyles in Tim on Tim Westwood's show. I think they're probably on YouTube. And I was listening to those and it was amazing. And I don't think I realized at the time, but they're, they're now like heralded as some classic freestyle performances. And I just heard them when they're on the radio and just thought, you know, this is how good rap all, always is. But obviously rap is like, that's some of the pinnacle of, of hip hop performance there. I remember those, those freestyles and like his um, Tony touch freestyles and stuff like downloading those on Napster and everything. Oh, yeah, it yeah. was part of the the mythology of him because you're right, it was freestyling, but it was such a high caliber. It's like having a Hendrix bootleg in the 60s. Like, this is rock. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. This is rap. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just raw, intense performing. And it, and it was so unlike everything that was on the radio at the time that you'd, that you'd hear. I think at the time you'd have things like, I think the Spice Girls were still big then and boy bands were massive. Right. And that was just something so completely different. I was just drawn to it. I didn't think about really the the cultural or the socioeconomic aspect of it. I just really liked how it sounded. And that is the thing about like any rap that crosses over into that pop sphere. A good song and a good story kind of transcends all of the um, the cultural history and everything. And like that's what's interesting to me about YouTube is that. If you have something that's visually interesting, you're telling a good story, the production is great, you can kind of build an audience in, in, in like being on your own planet. And like here you have, you've built this studio here where you're talking about maybe producing other artists and bringing in other content creators, like your own sphere where it's something you've created geographically and, and spiritually on your own terms. And that's kind of cool to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean... I'm amazed that all this kind of thing has, has sprung out of YouTube, not just for me, but for, as, as, a, as a kind of cultural phenomenon. Because I remember the very be beginnings of YouTube when it was just another website. It was kind of a, almost a gimmick. It was like, hey, there's this website where you can upload video files and other people can watch them. Right. And at the time, like, it seems obvious now to look back and go, well, that was obviously the future of entertainment. But at the time, I just remember thinking, oh, that's a, that's a cool gimmick. Like you'd look at, you know, when you look on Reddit and people post a site and, and it's an interesting gimmick, YouTube is just another one of those. Yeah. And I, the reason I got into YouTube was because I, I used to just put all my music on, I think it was called mp3.com. Um, yeah. And that got shut down. And I, so I needed somewhere else to put my music. And I thought, oh, I guess I, if I just put like a still picture uh, over the top and then I put my, put my songs on YouTube, they can sit there instead. And then it kind of, that is how my career gradually built out of that because I went from going, well, I don't, I guess I could have more than one still picture. I could make a little slideshow. And then I made like some music videos, which were little slideshows. And then I thought I could, I could do actual video. And so it just, it, it just 
you know, it came out of that. And then YouTube kept getting bigger and bigger. And just as a result of me having been on there for so long, I think I get got more and more views. YouTube was also a destination that people went to to find content. I don't think that happened as much with MP3 hosting sites. Like only real hardcore music fans would go to those sites and try to find underground music. Whereas on YouTube, people were on there to watch funny cat videos and then somehow they'd stumble across your music. So it's a great way to, to build an audience, especially for someone like me. I, I've, I don't like performing on stage. I think I've done it like three live solo performances and I've hated it. So I haven't been able to build an audience like that by touring and stuff. So the internet was amazing for me for that. Do you, um, do you, were you on MySpace or were you kind of after that? I was on MySpace. Yeah. 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 I think everyone was on MySpace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that what you said about mp3.com that like, imagine if mp3.com and MySpace had fused and figured out a way to do video hosting, how that would have become the like destination place. The fact that, YouTube took a chance on this experimental medium that, of course, back in the day was very pixelated and the site was clunky, but they were, what, like, weren't there other video hosting sites back in like 2005 or not really? There may have been, there may have been, but I, the only one I really remember is YouTube and I remember it being important enough that people were, were talking about YouTube. I mean, I can't remember anything before that. I'm, I do remember downloading videos from online where people would kind of host a Windows media player file on their right. own website but that obviously is not scalable whereas youtube was was scalable from the ground up so what would, what would you say was your first video where you're like oh wow my audience is like growing and might continue to keep growing massively uh the first video i, I made that had some kind of success or, or response outside of people that i personally knew was one i made called generation gaming and it was a song about the different consoles i'd had over the years and that was, that was literally the only gaming song I'd planned to do. I didn't think that gaming, like music based around gaming and geek culture was even a thing. I don't think I knew about nerdcore rap or anything. It was just, you know, I'd do, I'd, I, in my head it was like, right, I'll do a song about relationships, I'll do a song about football, I'll do a song about gaming, and it was just going to be that. But that video got kind of 10, 10 times as many views as any of the other things I put on there. So that was when I kind of realized, ah, oh, so geeky like my geeky side of me is actually something that people enjoy listening to and and i i, I imagine you, you in your development as an artist you probably went through a phase where you thought you had to present more of like a tough guy kind of image because of that's what hip-hop grew out of but then i realized i can actually i'm a lot more comfortable in this zone of being kind of a nerd and a slightly weird guy and just pr and and presenting that side of myself to people and when i started to do that there was a lot more people that I guess that related to that. Um, so I did some more things like that. And um, another song I did probably a couple of years later that got exponentially more views was a song about um, copyright. And it was a song called Dear Lily. And it was, to, it was a song aimed at Lily Allen, who back then, this was 10 years ago now, amazingly, but back then she had, she'd written a long blog post about copyright infringement and how, the, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was about protecting the rights of artists and things and, and how plagiarism was really bad. And it had then come out that she had plagiarized this article where she was condemning plagiarism. And it also wow. came out that, you know, she'd built her career on releasing mixtapes where she'd used commercial instrumentals, which is a common thing that people do. Um, fair enough. But she, she built her career up on that kind of 
unofficial, unauthorized mixtape scene and then condemned any kind of copyright infringement. Um, so I'd made a song calling her out on that. And I made a, a kind of, I didn't realize at the time, but it was really kind of an innovative video where it was just, the video was me typing an email to her. So I typed out the song as if it was just an email in like prose format and he just started typing along with the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. And I uploaded it and I emailed it to a couple of tech journalists because uh, I, I wanted to see if, you know, if anyone would be interested in it. I went to bed. I got up the next day and the video had 80,000 views, which, and this was in 2009 when YouTube wasn't that big. And I was yeah. like, oh my God, what, what on earth is happening? And my phone was just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. Like all my inboxes were full. It was insane. And then I thought, what have I done? <laughs> um, and yeah. I guess that was when I realized, when I really realized that music for me could be more than just a hobby or something that I really wanted to do. It, it was really something that was of value to other people. Um, and that kind of kick-started. After that happened, I got I ramped up my uh, productivity and just kept making more and more videos. And it was almost like a drug I was chasing, trying to get get right. you know the next thing that would draw people in. Or like a video game, you're always trying to level up, right? Like yeah, it's, yeah. It's if I found people like you and people like Mega Ren and people who are very good at gaming and making music. They approach social media in that way, and that's that's like has made you guys very successful. Yeah, yeah. It's called gamification. Have you heard of that that concept where people apply systems that are in video games to their life, and it, and and it's actually a really kind of positive and motivating way to achieve things in real life and achieve your goals. If you, if you structure things like, you know, you've got a quest list to do, or and there are different apps and things that let you do this. So you can and and you can assign scores and points to different things that you want to achieve. Um, that works really well for me, especially because I have this kind of hardwired autistic brain where everything is about yes, no, numbers, lists, and things. That right. works so well for me. Right. Like, uh, it's almost like it was created for for your art, right? In yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many, Dan, <coughs> how many hours a day do you spend doing creating content versus marketing it? Like, what's your daily breakdown? I think it used to be, this is an interesting question actually, because I think <clears throat> I think hardly anyone in the world has this balance quite right. Because there are, there are amazing people who spend 100% of their time making incredible music and no one will hear it because they don't even show it to anybody or they're not marketing it in the right place. Yeah. And then there are other people who barely have any music or they haven't really got good at music, but they spend all their time promoting it and begging people to retweet it and... and I think you need to find a space somewhere in between there. I always thought that space was 50-50, like you'd spend 50% of your time making music and 50% marketing it. So that's what I used to do. As my YouTube audience grew, I got less into doing the marketing side of things because I thought, well, I have this subscriber base on YouTube now. I don't need to market anything because so they'll just watch it. Yeah. But I think I've actually kind of neglected that and I need to get more into thinking every time I release a new track, what journalist will be interested in this or like... Uh, what celebrity influencer might be interested in this and can I show it to them? Can they show it to their audience? I think it's a really vital tool that people often neglect or do in the wrong way. And it's interesting how, you know, I always, I often on this podcast talk about Nirvana as a, as a crossroads in music where it was like this last moment where being oblivious to the marketing and the, um, the mechanisms of spreading music was an asset to them, which allowed their songwriting and performance to have more integrity. And that, you know, like Kurt had 
took issue when when uh, Courtney Love bought a Lexus. He was like, "This is not reflective of the punk culture. Like, we we have this money, but it's like a sin to to level up in that way. You need to like keep yourself insulated by it, and not think about the machine, and and not." You know, even though they were hugely successful with with MTV and like licensing their songs, that kind of mentality is is not. You can't have that mentality in 2020 because, or what year is it? 2019. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> we have. You have to really be aware of so much content out there, and there's no such thing as selling out really because you have to make all these. You have to do anything you can to get your music heard, right? And it's a different time. And sometimes I feel nostalgic for that mentality, but it's, of course, it's 20 years ago. It's an antiquated perspective. And I think there's been a big shift in, in attitudes, not only of, of the creators, but of their audiences, especially looking um, at it from a YouTuber perspective. I've seen how monetization and branding and things have been introduced to YouTube over the years. And initially people, especially audiences, were really hostile to it. If you did anything where it implied that you're even making any money from what you're doing on YouTube, people would accuse you of being a sellout. Now, it seems like every creator is kind of promoting their merch line, that they're, they're, they're doing branded sponsored videos, they have all these different revenue streams. Twitch has like six different revenue streams, and people are really supportive of the idea that their, their favorite creators are making money and profiting from what they're doing. Yeah. I think it's it's almost because because it's not they haven't achieved what they've what where, where they've got to through maybe the help of a record label who's just given them this pedestal to stand on everyone comes up from the same level in, in YouTube and Twitch really so people look at look at that look at a person who's who's up there on a high level making like huge amounts of money from Twitch and they think that could be me so people yeah. are a lot more open to that to that that people you know people can exploit every opportunity they get to try and improve and increase their own career and and knowing that when they help support them and the brands they're aligned with the money is going to the creator it's not going to some nebulous label recouping fund exactly right? yeah yeah <laughs> like when, when you used to buy an album from from a record stop uh, shop you didn't know who was getting that money where it would go to how much would be to the artist how much would be to the store how much would be to the label you just you just it just you handed it over, but you know if you're watching someone on Twitch and you're and you're donating bits to them or, or things, and, and it pops up on the screen, Dan Bull has donated five dollars to MC Lars, and MC Lars is on the screen and says, "Thanks, Dan." Yeah, that you can't really get more direct than that. Right. People and know exactly where their money's going, and they're getting an instant acknowledgement and response from it. And similarly, like if you're engaged with a channel and you comment on the videos, when the creator writes back, you're like, oh, this would have, I could never have talked to, you know, Beavis and Butthead on TV or something <laughs> yeah. like that. I could never talk to these characters I, I saw in, in a time when there wasn't that breakdown. And that's, that's cool. And it also means, it also means that there's this, this then ability for people to create more and consume less, which is always like a motto that I try to like reinforce when I do workshops and with kids and stuff. It's like spend more time making content than consuming all the free content you can, right? Because that's going to make you a happier person, I think. Yeah, yeah. You're an example of this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a delayed gratification thing, isn't it? It's like consuming is instant gratification. Creating, well, you get instant gratification from creating as well, but the, the, the real reward is when you've got that finished piece of work that you've made in, entirely by yourself. I, I, I think there still needs to be a balance between if you spent all your time creating stuff, you'd have a 
you wouldn't have much inspiration to draw from. So I think it's important to listen to, I tell people to listen to good music and bad music because I think you could learn a lot from listening to bad, poorly produced music because you can hear all the mistakes someone else has made. Right, that's true. Which means you don't have to make those mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> right, or, or <coughs> you can learn from um, good things about bad music, right? Like things that they do well that, that the mistakes are overshadowing, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost easier to see good things in a mediocre song than it is to see good things in a perfect song. So if you picked a, like a perfect pop song, it'd be very hard to work out exactly what makes it so good. Right. Whereas if you heard a mediocre song that just had a really good guitar solo or something, then you can focus on that and none of the other things are affecting your judgment of it. So do you still like seek out and listen to pop music or underground music? Is that part of your daily work routine? It's not, I, I wouldn't say it's part of, part of a routine, but I, I love doing it. I, it's something I do more when I'm kind of at the end of the day when I'm tired and I I'm, I've, don't want to do any more admin or creation or stuff and then I'll, I'll open up spotify or i'll open up soundcloud or something and just browse around and see if i can find something interesting i also often ask my audience for recommendations or i'll, mm. I'll say on twitter like i'm in the mood for this kind of thing what do you recommend uh, and you get some great recommendations there's a rapper called juice world have you oh, heard yeah. of juice world yeah yeah and it, um i can't remember the song I can't remember the title of the song, but I, it came on when I was just kind of listening to a random playlist of, of new hip-hop. And it really stood out to me because it sounded like, to me, it sounded like almost a pop-punk kind of Blink-182 kind of song, but in a trap rap style. And I, was, I hadn't heard anything like that before. Like, he had this cracked high emotion in his voice. He's, I think the song was about being drunk and stuff. So Yeah. Uh, but it, it just made me think, like, trap, trap music, like hip-hop has kind of moved into this area of really bleak, dark trap music. And I didn't, I kind of couldn't see where it could go from there. And I, I, I haven't been enjoying that kind of thing as much because I like kind of funky grooves and lots of different colorful sounds. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting to see the music that's now blossoming out of this new type, type of rap that's come up, trap, which, uh, which is now kind of the de facto hip hop that everyone listens to. Right, um, and now it's kind of splitting off into um, punk and and all sorts of rock elements are coming in. Do you know um, Akira the Don? Yeah, I love him. Yeah, yeah. So he was talking. He was talking to me about this. He said it's amazing to see so many new, so many old genres of music are now kind of ha having a rebirth within rap and hip hop, and that's really right. cool to see. Right, right, and uh, Lil Peep. Do you listen to him? Ever? Yeah, yeah. He he's a great example of that kind yeah. of thing. Where he was, it was kind of emo rap, right? And very much, very very different to the kind of hip hop that that was popular in the '90s when I started listening to it. Where you were just, it was all about showmanship, and you were invincible, and you were the best. This rappers now are very honest and open about their flaws and their insecurities and their problems, and I think that's that's really cool and relatable. And the um, compulsions to escape, whether into like opiates or Xanax or sex or things that like this painful, scary 21st century has driven them to do, you know, it's, it's interesting too, from a psychological perspective. I think it, I think that's, I've, I've thought about the same thing and I think it, it maybe it comes from the economic situation of the, the world now. It seems like the, ba the baby boomer generation actually had things pretty good. Uh, generation X had things pretty good, uh, but now there's a generation of people who look like they're never going to be able to own their own home. They're always going to be in a kind of gig economy job. 
they're, they don't see a future that's much different from their current situation. So I'm not surprised that people are people's attitude is very kind of nihilistic, and that and and that they that kind of subject matter is now coming up so often, and people are relating to it. Right, and it's being vulnerable in a way where, yeah, the solution is in a lot of ways it's the consumption and creation of art as a something of a higher calling. You know, I feel like in the mid 2000s when I started, it was really cool to be able to like independently you know, advocate sharing music and write about like topics I was interested in, but it didn't feel like the world was in this crazy like decline or stasis or confusion where, you know, content and media and, and the stories really have, it's important. It's everything. It's, it seems much more having inspiration has never been more <laughs> important. I think, you know? Yeah. You I know? think, I think, looking at it at the internet as well it's just this it seems so much more hostile and negative and people drawing lines in the sand and it's either you're with us or against us um i wasn't like that before and i i i think personally i almost take refuge from that in in just going and sinking my brain into art and creativity and things um i i don't like seeing people consider other people as other an enemy or you know i i i i don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> no, well, it, that that art is <coughs> there's a freedom in it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's more important than ever because I I feel what you're saying people are very divided about everything, and it's hard to be political now because you know obviously I'm you know, very anti-Trump, and I've made that clear like with my album titles and stuff. But I don't talk about it on stage and stuff because like some of my fans did vote for him, and so it's like it's awkward to be like to have an uh, you know what I mean? People are so divided, so it's, you have to be more careful too. I think it, there's also a difference between presenting your opinion uh, as part of your art or just standing on stage and kind of ranting at the audience in between your songs about politics. I think I'd be, mm -hmm. I'd far more, if, even if someone had a very different political opinion to me, I'd, I'd rather listen to music about it than just them telling me about it. Make you feel bad yeah. <laughs> at a show. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like Rage Against the Machine, where it, where their lyrics are incredibly left wing and uh, but they're basically communists, right? Right. I think a lot of people would only only listen to their lyrics and them talking about that because it was in the format of the music they did. If Rage Against the Machine was just a, a guy doing doing like apolitical music and then in between the songs he'd do all this communist ranting I don't think that would have had the same impact <laughs> or and the I always thought it was interesting about Rage Against the Machine is that there was this irony that you really had to use this ma mainstream capitalist corporations to spread that message but in a way that's that was kind of like um, subversive right to use to use record chains and TV and, and all these very capitalist um, the mechanism to spread that message, which yeah. I guess is cool, which, but it also there's an irony to that, right? Yeah, there's, there's two ways to look at it, isn't there? They're either exploiting the system that they and, and, and benefiting from a system that they claim they're against or they're in the belly of the beast and they're kind of bringing it down from within. I don't know, but looking at the various members of Rage Against the Machine, now I think they're all heavily involved in political activism and stuff. So I think their hearts were definitely in the right place. They didn't have YouTube in, back in like 94, 95 to, to spread yeah, their yeah. message. Um, what was that story where like a few years ago, didn't a bunch of like British people helped make one of their songs a Christmas number one hit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I don't know if you have this show in the US called The X Factor. 
Um, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's oh, it's it's probably pretty similar to American Idol, that kind of thing. And and it got to the point where every Christmas, the Christmas number one song, which which traditionally the UK has has considered like really important cultural milestone. Like what what's going to be Christmas number one this year? Yeah. But every year it started to be whoever was on this TV show, and it was always a very kind of polished, safe ballad kind of thing like a christmas song typically yeah but but not not like the classic 1950s like frank sinatra and uh-huh. bing crosby kind of christmas song just just <laughs> just like a pop ballad and it was very homogenized and boring and and so someone started a campaign to get killing in the name by rage against the machine to to number one instead of whoever was on the on the x factor that year right um and they they did it it, it was a big viral campaign and they did it but i remember uh, at the time i thought I looked at who the two, um, I can't remember who the artist was that they were against now, but the artist from The X Factor and Rage Against the Machine were both actually on the same record label, oh. Sony, right? So right. whichever one won, it wasn't really, it wasn't really like sticking it to the man at all. The man was just making even more money from these two <laughs> factions that were determined to stop the other one from reaching number one. It was like divide and conquer. British people, to me, having come here so long, there's, there is a lot of rebellion in here, but there's also a lot of, uh, maybe you can speak on this, a lot of like practicality, right? We can't overthrow the parliament, but we can have a rebellious political song for our Christmas hits. Yeah, right? I think there's, a, there's also a kind of streak of almost, almost self-destructive stubbornness in, in Britain. Like we're used to things going wrong and when things go wrong, like with the with the whole shitstorm that's happening now with the, with Britain leaving the European Union, no one on either side is happy with it, and people get to the point, and I think it's a kind of uh, British mentality where we think stuff's uh, stuff's not good right now. We may as well enjoy just watching it burn, and I think that's that's um, a really fun attitude to have. If you can't, you know, if you if you're powerless to change the the bullshit that's going on, you may as well just enjoy watching the chaos ensue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been and it's been a a, a <coughs> gradual decline in in empire for you guys for quite a bit, right? Yeah, yeah. And so and so then there's this appreciation I feel like in mu- in, in music and friendship and going out in in holidays in you know in family you know you guys are we're 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 kind of on we're both in a, a context where our empires are declining and we're in a, we're in a kind of a setting sun kind of world so we can learn from each other by seeing what we find value in, right? I think that's that, yeah. That's why I love coming here so much. <laughs> I think I think it's interesting that like every every empire that's ever existed has had the same kind of the same story where it where it gets to a certain size and then and then it almost buckles under its own weight and its own arrogance. And I think that happened with the British Empire. People just get tired of it. Uh and I think I think that maybe that's happening with the US. Although the US is the US isn't an empire in the traditional sense it's more of like a i guess a cultural empire and a lot of the way that you the u.s has influence over other countries is not they're not um directly ruling over them but they just have so much influence through culture and through things like the cia god knows what the cia do in various countries but i think it's still gonna probably end up going the same way at some point and that's and that's why a lot of i mean people who support trump this idea of building a wall and going inward and cutting off trade is because, well, we got to protect our own interests, but what makes the world a great place is being able to 
not have all these impositions of the walls and everything. And, and a, a wall, yeah, metaphorically isn't going to, I don't know, there's only so much you can do, you know what I mean, with, with blocking the world out because the world is going to, people are going to share ideas and people are going to figure out how to overcome that, right? Yeah, I think the first thing that happens with any kind of wall is people work out how to get around it. Right. Like, I, I read a story about the Great Wall of China being, apparently it was a huge failure because it had taken God knows how many years to build and, and thousands of people died during the building of the Great Wall of China. When it was finally finished, uh, the barbarians or whoever that they were trying to keep out still managed to get through because all they had to do was go to one of the kind of gate areas and they would just bribe the guards on the gate to let them through and they'd just let them through. <laughs> <laughs> the same kind of thing I can imagine, not necessarily you know just a direct bribe, but... but a wall, I don't think it is going to stop something as complicated as the situation that's happening with Mexico and the USA or, you know, the the, the wall in um, or the, the various wars and border fences that are in Israel and the Middle East. It seems like trying to stop something that is inevitable rather than working out how to adapt to that situation that's causing it instead of just putting up a literal wall in front of it. Well, going back to the gamification thing you said, right? Like there's, you got to adapt and think in, in creative ways. And um, when someone comes up with an idea like, well, no, this is the way to do it. This is simple, blah, blah, blah. They will get a lot of support for having that like binary perspective of good and bad and polarizing people, you know? Yeah, I think it's like, a, it's a populist view and we're seeing more and more populist politics because it's easy to understand. Not everybody has the time or inclination to try and, look at the nuances of every single factor that's causing, you know, various influxes of immigration from one place to another or something. It's much easier to be told this group of people is bad or this big group of people wants to take this from you. It's much easier to understand and people get behind that. Right. I, I, can, huge, I can also, yeah. I can see why um, you, you mentioned Trump. I can see like he very much capitalizes on that kind of um rhetoric i guess he uses very simple words and and he he just describes things as good or bad and you're either with him or you're against him he doesn't really go into the into the nuances and complications and complexities of things and because of that reason people take him at his word and they think you know he's he's he makes sense regardless of whether what if what he's saying is necessarily true it still makes sense Whereas if you listen to someone maybe like Bernie Sanders or or even maybe Barack Obama, who were a lot more of a nuanced speakers, they perhaps didn't appeal to that same group of people simply because they were talking about things in a more complicated or nuanced way. Right, a more informed way, I would say, too. I mean, the, tr the truth is complicated and life is messy. And so, yeah, it's like... I, I guess if, if you're down to talk about this, would you be down to talk briefly about Brexit in a way that some maybe non-British people might, it might be helpful for help, help them understand it? Are you down or? I can try. I don't, okay. I, I, I want to give you the, um, I, I want to tell you that I'm no expert on this and it totally baffles me. Okay. And the reason I've actually ha haven't said much about it online or in music or anything is because I just don't understand it. I, yeah. And I think that's part of the problem is that nobody really understands what exactly is going to happen or how to achieve it or what the best result might be. Um, and people are entrenched in these two camps now that the, 
the pro Britain leaving the European Union and anti. And it's the same story that's happening in America with whether you're pro or anti Trump. It's it's those two sides are getting more and more entrenched against against each other and seeing each other as as the problem and trying to stop this side from getting what they want and this side trying to stop this side from getting what they want. There's no I haven't really seen any objective analysis or description of what the hell is going on with Brexit that makes sense and that isn't informed by some kind of bias. Yeah. Um, right. So I don't know how to explain the thing. I mean, I yeah. can explain what it is in a dictionary sense, <laughs> but I don't know how to tell you what the implications and ramifications of various things are. Because I, literally as we talk now, the, the British Parliament is arguing and, and kind of tearing itself apart, trying to work out if Britain's going to leave the European Union, how do we do it? And they currently keep holding various votes in the parliament and the, every single vote on every topic is getting struck down by people saying, no, we don't want to do it that way. We don't want to do it that way. We don't want to do it that way. And the prime minister is saying, well, what do you want? Um, but the thing is, people don't know, nobody knows exactly the best way to do it. So they, they, they see all these options on the table and they think, well, it's not going to work like that. It's not going to work like that. It's not going to work like that. The problem is, Everything seems to be a no. So at the moment, we're just in a big limbo. Is it because, and it's because it's an unprecedented thing, right? It's never, Britain's never tried to leave the European Union quite like this ever, have they? Yeah, I think, um, I think Britain joined the European Union in the 70s. I remember there was a, there was a referendum vote and people chose to join the European Union. Over the years, people got, got kind of disillusioned with it. Um, excuse me. Uh, People got disillusioned with it because there were lots of stories in the newspapers about how how much money was going from Britain to the EU, and then and in return, it seemed like the EU was just imposing various laws on Britain, to, uh, so that, it, that as it was on all the other countries, so that it would be this common market. So we had things like traditionally, you'd have you'd go to the to the market as in like a small market where you'd buy groceries and things and things were measured in pounds and ounces like they are in the US. Mm -hmm. That became, I think it became illegal because of the EU and they wanted everything in the metric system. So there were kind of independent greengrocers and market people being being punished and, and fined and things for just measuring things in the wrong weights. And that, and very, uh, uh, over time, these stories about what the effect the EU was having on Britain was starting to make people feel tired and like what's the point of being part of this we, we don't like being bossed around by people we didn't elect we don't see the benefit from it um and that kind of just gradually grew to the point where it became this populist issue um the then prime minister of the uk david cameron decided to announce um, a second or a referendum on whether to leave the eu i think that he wasn't expecting it to actually succeed because mm. mo pretty much all politicians wanted britain to stay in the in the EU, apart from a few kind of fringe ones, and there's a party called the UK Independence Party, a fairly right right wing party. They always wanted Britain to leave. UKIP, leave right? UKIP, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the result of that referendum in 2016 is Britain uh, voted by fairly narrow margin to leave the EU, and. Ever since then, it's just been constantly in the news with our politicians and people trying to work out what this means and how it's how we're going to do it, whether we are going to do it, whether we sh should have a second referendum, and it's just never-ending news. And and I right. I switched my brain off to it because I yeah, thought, yeah. you know what, I I can't do anything about this. I can't even understand it myself. And 
just to spend time trying to understand it, I could be doing better things with my life. Although the same year I became a parent. So obviously my my priorities became far more immediate to me at that point rather than the than the bigger the bigger picture. Because it seems like people, like you said, are British people I've talked to feel alienated and feel it's confusing and feel like they don't know what the truth is. And I think it's how a lot of Americans feel about our current political situation too. We have this in common where we all feel kind of hoodwinked and like our power has been taken from us and it's very confusing and it's exhausting like like to think about and wonder about and it, your yeah. situation is also un- unprecedented yeah. right because trump I, I i think i'm right in saying trump is must be the first president whose first ever job in politics was president like he, <laughs> right. mo- most people right. will, will be in like local government and then maybe they'll become a senator or something like that. And then they'll, they'll work their way up the ranks and, and maybe they'll run for president and maybe they'll become president. Trump didn't do any of that. He just went, right, I'm running for president and then became president. It's, it's crazy right. how that happened. Obviously, he's entitled to do that, but it, at the same time, it's kind of scary. Talk about Rage Against the Machine using the Sony mechanisms to have their career. I think some people who support him were like, well, he's going to shake things up, blah, blah, blah. It's interesting. We talked about Eminem earlier. One of the only people who didn't respond to was Eminem's like attack on him, right? That was that, that was like so weird that that then in a way took away Eminem's power by him not even did, caring. Did he not respond? No. Yeah. <laughs> like That's of, interesting. Yeah. They, they did a video together um, ages ago, Trump and Eminem. He, Trump like featured as himself in, in, in a promotional Eminem video. I, can't, I think it was promoting the Eminem show album. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's, um, I didn't know I that. I don't know how that came about. It was either Trump introduced Eminem on stage or Eminem introduced Trump on stage. Yeah. But obviously that relationship has soured somewhat since. (laughs) Are you still, going back to Eminem, did you like, did you like his last record? Are you still a fan of his or not so much? Um, Yeah, I I haven't really been that excited about Eminem for years now. It's just that his music and stuff, his earlier style really inspired and influenced and informed me. Um, in getting into like complicated rhyme schemes and very much like syncopated rhythms, so it's not just rapping on the beat all the time. He would like almost dance around the rhythm and things. And his style's changed a lot since then. It's still very complicated uh, and complex, and like lots of wordplay and puns crammed in. But it's almost it's almost like he's run out of what he can do with with this more f- fluid, free flowing style. And now it's just about. I compare it to. Guitar players say, if you look at Jimi Hendrix playing a guitar solo, it's very free and 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 um, confident and easy and loose, and he does exactly what he wants. Yeah. Compare that to someone like, say, Joe Satriani or Steve Vai, where it's amazing technically, but I don't really want to listen to it because it's just every single second of it is is just showing off, like tapping and, and smashing out as many notes and, and sequences as possible. I feel like that's the direction Eminem's gone in. So it's very impressive to listen to, yeah. but it's not always very enjoyable to listen to. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like it's become very academic, hasn't it? And very technical. Definitely. It's, it's, that's the, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. He's almost, yeah. It's almost like he's experimenting to see how far he can push what he can do instead of thinking about it from the listener's perspective of how He's talking to a listener. Um, you're, I see a lot of guitars around here. Are you a trained guitarist or you play guitar? I'm a guitarist. I'm not a trained guitarist. Yeah. I, I, um, 
got one as a teenager because I just thought guitars were cool. Yeah. I, I, as well as being into hip hop, I was into kind of pop punk and metal and that kind of stuff. Uh, I still am, but it kind of, I, I was in a band as well. And I really, um, as a teenager, my goal was for this band to kind of take off and be really popular, but they had more realis realistic aspirations and, and went into academia and things. And I sat at home still wanting to be a musician. Somehow that actually happened, but I think it was probably, I'm the exception to the rule of, of you know, the person who, who doesn't bother to try and pursue qualifications and, and things and tries to be a musician. Luckily for me, it took off. <laughs> well, we have that in common because, you know, I used to play <coughs> I used to play guitar in a, a punk band and I was doing the rap stuff for fun. And um, what was your band called? Matron's Apron. We were, we were a very weird kind of uh, novelty rock band, I'd say. We, we just made really weird, silly songs. In fact... Maybe I can uh, play you one of those at the end of this. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> do you, are you? Would you ever have like a reunion show with those guys? I, I'd lo I'd love to do something with them again. Yeah. Um, but I mean, one of my friends, Rob, who was the drummer in the band, is now a uh, professor of philosophy at Oxford University. Oh. Which is very different to being a drummer in a novelty rock band. Uh, they've all gone. We've all gone our separate ways, really. Uh, but it would be awesome to, to hook up with those guys again. That, well, maybe put, putting the message out there, get the yeah, band yeah. back together. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, like, what was, what were some of your favorite metal influences? Then you mentioned you like metal. Um, one of the first, in fact, the first album I ever bought. I don't know if it strictly counts as metal, but it was The Offspring, Americana, which was definitely itself was influenced by metal. I don't know what genre you call it, really, punk metal, maybe. Yeah. Or just punk, but it was it was heavier and more complex guitar wise than typical pop punk um i loved that kind of thing i um what else did i like i a new metal came up came around when i was you know at the at a very um at the at the age when you kind of s absorb everything like a sponge musically right. so so i really liked stuff like uh limp biscuit uh system of down i absolutely loved system of down because the music's so strange and dynamic and and just weird um yeah, I always liked metal that had a bit more of a, a groove to it rather than just just constant like loud noise and aggressiveness. So I wasn't so much into stuff like Metallica and things. I was more into things like Pantera, for example, where that guitar Ooh. groove, yeah, it, it, there was a lot more of a groove behind it, which again ties into, I think, why like hip-hop because it was not just constant dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. It would be like do do dum yeah yeah like like what i love about pantera is dimebag's riffs had a melody you just could not forget yeah and that was special and that was different than a lot of the rap metal and other metal of that time what's your favorite pantera album do you have one dan the only one i had and i didn't even i think i had a pirated version was uh vulgar display of power that's my favorite yeah so yeah. Good. so i'm not i won't pretend to be an expert on pantera but it was uh, i remember hearing them and just thinking this is my jam well so i meant i wanted to ask you this when you were you're a few years younger than me and um when you were um, listening to music and getting into rap metal and stuff did you have any awareness or appreciation for like icp and the juggalo stuff or was that kind of like not fringe for you my only my only awareness of them came through the references of the Eminem made to them in his songs because he had a feud going on with them at that right. point. <laughs> and then I think I I think that was about the same time I got Napster or LimeWire or one of those file sharing services. And I think I downloaded some ICP, but 
it might have been like live bootlegs or something and I didn't think much of it. I didn't explore it any further. They didn't really tour here much. That was more of a regional American kind of thing, the Juggalo stuff. Yeah, I get I get that impression. I'm not sure if it's something that would translate so well to Britain because I think they that it I don't know whether this is fair, but it looks as if they the the gimmick that they have with their makeup and and their personas, they take that very seriously. And in Britain, we don't really like people who take themselves too seriously, especially with like a gimmick like clown makeup and stuff. Right. <laughs> like I think I think in saying clown posse, if, if their music had been a lot more ironic and self-aware and kind of nudge nudge wink wink, would have done better in the UK. But from what I've seen of them and their fan base, especially, they're ride or die. <laughs> That's <laughs> serious. True. That binary we we're talking about earlier, <clears throat> like that um, all or nothing, right? Yeah. Um, were you? What did you think of Ali G and and all of that? His his thing talking about like wink wink nudge nudge irony. I loved Ali G. Ali G. Yeah. Ali G became like a pop culture phenomenon here when I was about 12, 13 years old. Ironically, I didn't realize that it he was a character. I thought he was actually like this guy that was shaking up the system and interviewing all these old fuddy duddy politicians and stuff. <laughs> Only later I realized he was a character because. Well, I just grew up a bit, and it became obvious that, that that's not a real person. Um, he, funnily enough, he was based partially on Tim Westwood, who I met, mentioned earlier, the DJ. Oh, um, Tim, Tim Westwood uh, get gets a lot of criticism for he's basically very upper middle class and very comes from a very privileged background. I think his dad was like an archbishop of some kind of church or something, um, but he used to use loads of hip hop slang and kind of had a weird forced accent. Mm. from god knows i don't i don't want to make any judgments about him but he got he got a lot of criticism for that and i think ali g was based on that like someone who thinks that they are something very different from what they obviously are right right well there's someone who who i always thought it was funny that like he wanted to be part of hip-hop culture so much he was unaware of like the silliness of of like oh you don't like me because i'm black or stuff like that like <laughs> yeah. like his his so offensive, but but coming from a place of well, he just really loves the music and he doesn't have his own culture of his own to connect with. Yeah, yeah. Were you a fan of Goldie Looking Chain? And I asked this because some of their first U.S. shows I opened for them, and like I always wow, I always lo have loved them, but I don't. No one in the U.S. really remembers them. I'm so glad you asked me this question because yeah. I I um Goldie Looking Chain is one of the bands I discovered on just through the internet. I can't remember quite how I found them. I think I was probably I was desperately googling for like. UK hip hop and stuff because it, it wasn't easy to find that kind of thing back then. Do you want Dan? Dan for <coughs> for people who maybe don't know who they are, how would you describe them? Ah, oh, you see, it, it'd be more easy for me to describe them to a British audience, but there's a whole extra cultural barrier to have to get to <laughs> to describe them through to an American audience. Imagine I were British. How would you describe? I've never heard of a theoretically. So how would you describe them to me? And then I'll make the translation for an American. They listeners. are a bunch of Welsh stoners <laughs> pretending to be a bunch of Welsh chavs who are making uh, hip-hop in a kind of Wu-Tang Clan posse style, but about Welsh chav stoner lifestyles. Right. <laughs> yeah. So there's three <laughs> So Welsh. So those <coughs> <laughs> Those of you listening, Wales is a another country within the UK on, yep. on the western side of the UK, <laughs> and um, a chav is what we would call uh, a chav is is 
in America would be, well, you could probably find the, the American equivalency. What would you say? Uh, the closest thing it would probably be, you'd probably call a redneck, but they're, they're not necessarily rural. They're lo- quite often they're from towns and cities, like an, an urban redneck, I'd say. Or like in Australia, they'd say a bogan. A bogan, mate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they wear track suits and like um, have a lot of hair product, maybe wear, wear, wear jewels and gold, maybe fake gold. And so that's the goldy looking chain, right? That it might not be a gold chain, but it looks like it. That's yeah. where I always thought the name came from. You know what? I didn't, I never thought about that. I just thought that was a weird name, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's, and they often love hip hop. And in the UK, often they love American hip hop because, and, and stuff like, I guess, Roots Maneuva and, and stuff like that. Would you, was, is Mike Skinner from the streets, would he be considered a chav or no? Or does he play with that trope? Uh, yeah, I think he he's probably like he's probably from a more of a middle class. I, I, I don't really know. I know he's from very near here. Actually, he's from Birmingham. Um, uh, he he's not a ch- chav in in as much as the stereotype of a chav as kind of an aggressive idiot that's in a, wearing a tracksuit. But he he did kind of present uh, a culture that was closer to that, like going to. In in his rap, he would talk about like going to raves and taking pills and and kind of lifestyle on a on a boring like housing estate in in a, in a city and stuff. Going to Mickey D's and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like just that the you know the everyday man would do rather than some kind of glorified glamorous lifestyle. What's great about the streets is the storytelling and and the melodies and the musicianship. I guess we could talk more about about him in a minute, but like. Are is chavs associated with football hooliganism or no? Um, that's a good question. I think football hooligan hooliganism and chav. There's probably a Venn diagram where they cross over, right? But <laughs> football hooliganism is more of like an organized hobby that that people seem to do. Um, I don't get it myself. Like, but there's a, there's a whole culture around that. Diff- different factions that and that. What's weird with football hooligans is, is that the leaders of various gang, gang factions are actually in touch with each other like on phone and stuff oh almost like friends and they organize to meet up and fight each other it's very weird oh, oh so like be like my boys will meet your boys in the alley at this time or behind the stadium yeah it's 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 all very organized it's almost like a, a shared hobby <laughs> it's it's really strange to me um but Ch- a chavez is more of a well first of all it's it's kind of frowned upon as a as a way of describing people because it's kind of it's classist. Right? Yeah, it's it's classist. Um, yeah. ch- Chavs are usually from like a, a working class background. They'll have grown up with not not very many opportunities, maybe bad, bad educational opportunities and stuff. And um, what's Dan? What's the etymology of the wor- word? I heard it's like an acronym, but I I, I I don't know. I don't know. And I know I know that in different places around the country they're given different names. Like right. in in Bromsgrove they were called Kevs. And then I don't know why they were called Kevs. I guess Kevin. I don't know. Oh. In, in Glasgow, in Scotland, they're called Neds, which is an acronym for non-educated delinquent. Oh, um, I I heard this, and I, this I'm sure this is wrong. That the origin is, and I would n- never say this, but the origin is Council House Associated Vermin. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't surprise me. It might be horrible. That though. might be a backronym. A backronym. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. I don't know. Okay. Um, I know that. I know that. Um, also, I think like I I used to see a lot of people that look like stereotypical chavs about like ten fifteen years ago. I don't see that anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know why say. that's why that's happened. Whether it's just a change in fashion or or attitude, I I have no idea. 
well, the Chav culture's been gentrified, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> because everyone can go to Primark or buy their different clothes so they don't look like they're part of that. Yeah, it could it could almost tie in with social the rise of social media and um, you know the culture of showing off and stuff all the time. Maybe maybe, maybe because of that, fashion and things people became a lot more aware of fashion coming from different places and hairstyles change changing and things and and almost accelerated the changes in fashion and famously burberry discontinued making the the hat right the burberry hat which really? was a i didn't know that that then became a knockoff like part of that um you know that was like a part of the uniform you'd see that a lot the burberry the fake burberry hat yeah yeah it, it what well, it sounds bad but the stereotype is pretty was pretty accurate like not not so much now, but I remember just like if you'd walk through town and you'd see it, you you would literally see gangs of people standing like on a corner smoking together or something, and they'd be wearing an Adidas tracksuit and a Burberry hat, and probably if you looked at them, they'd swear at you or or try and start a fight or something. Like the stereotype didn't come from nowhere, right? Not that I'm saying it's fair on everybody. Well, it, and it kind of feeling like maybe. I think this is how America and England are different. I feel like sometimes you might you might be able to school me on this and correct me if I'm wrong. The institutionalized class structures make it feel like it's not as mutable here. If you're born into a, a certain life, it's very hard to become a professor of philosophy at Oxford or something or to become a prime minister. This idea of the American dream where like Herman Melville would talk about this, that it's this ennui that people suffer from that, oh, even a milkman could ideally be a president one day, like this infinite expansive like possibilities. The UK, like you talked about earlier about watching things burn, there's like, well, this is the way things are, you know, uh, it's unlikely if I'm grew up in a council house that I'll be the a prime minister. So I'll just accept my fate. And so there's also maybe some disappointment with that. I think people are more, more entrenched in their, um, the, you know the, the background that they came from and I, I heard I don't can't remember who said this but it summed up a really good uh, it was a good summary of the difference in attitudes between Americans and British people and they said that one in a, when a, an American person or like a poorer American person sees someone drive by in an amazing sports car uh, revving the engine and, and, and showing off the car that person will go that could be me one day and in Britain if if a poor person saw someone in that car revving the engine on a corner or something, they would say, wanker. <laughs> it just sums up the whole attitude. Like, we, uh, we don't, we, we're more into kind of being proud of the, the situation that, that we were born into and that our family are in. And I don't think there's, we didn't have the American dream. Like, I think because Britain, America is a fairly new country and, it, and right. it, was, it was just a land of unlimited possibilities. Whereas Britain's just grown up this, ancient history where there was always you there were always peasants and there were always noblemen and i think even the situation now is still just a continuation of that it's not as obvious but it's still there so you're saying it's this feudal class structure that is ancient in a way it could be yeah, i mean I, yeah. I i don't know if that's true but i can imagine it, it might well be because there's never been and an, an, there's never been a massive revolution in the uk um in the same way as America has, where everything's been reset. There was there was a time when the, the king, the monarchy was overthrown for a while by Oliver Cromwell, uh, but then the monarchy came back. And then mm. before that, it was in the year 1066, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before America even existed when the Normans invaded. I don't think that. And also that was still, you know, that was still kings ruling over peasants. So Was that the Battle of Hastings? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, okay. And then what happened? How did the Normans get kicked out or, or, or did they just become part of They just Britain's became, yeah, part of Britain. And that's, uh, you can see a lot of that legacy in the English language. Like most of the English language is a mixture of Germanic origin words, which is from the Anglo-Saxons who came from Germany and uh, Norman words, which are French words. And what's interesting, the, the class thing still applies through the language as well. If you hear words of a Germanic origin, you will think of them as more kind of guttural or earthy than if you hear words of a French origin. And, and have you heard the reason why, why meat has different names and why, that, why the names sound different for cooked meat and for, for, for the animal or the raw meat? This is, no, this is interesting. Tell me. Yeah. So if, if you think of... Um, if you think of the names of like various animals, like say sheep, for example, sheep is a word. It's not a French word. Um, it's the word that the Anglo-Saxon peasants would have used to just describe the animals they were farming. But then the words like um, lamb, I think I might be wrong here. Filet mignon, or that's meat. That's beef, I guess. Yeah, that, that's yeah, French. yeah, yeah. So, so the the. The noblemen and the, the the Normans who had conquered Britain would only refer to the animals as the, their cooked versions because they'd have it presented them and cooked. So that now we have the name of, of cooked meat is all usually French words, and the name of the original living animal is a Germanic Saxon word. So those things wow. still still kind of echo down through generations and still affect us now. Based on what and you are what part of appreciating the noun of this animal you're on reflects your class and your connection to it based yeah, on. yeah that's interesting man yeah that's a good thing to know what i don't know whether lamb is a french word i probably used the wrong example but it's and i i'm sure people if they're interested in that and the etymology of those words will be will, they'll be able to read them out online and stuff well what's a what's a um very norman word versus a very germanic word that are like that you use typically like what are two examples of of obvious words that have that you can think of um uh, how are we allowed to swear? Yeah, sure, sure. So originally in Britain, the the common and it was it wasn't considered rude or obscene or anything. The common word for the female genitals was cunt. You just say cunt. Uh-huh. My cunt hurts, or you know, you, you just say cunt. It wasn't it wasn't a swear word. It it was um, that was what people said, and then the, and I, it it became considered vulgar. And vul the word vulgar even it doesn't necessarily mean rude. Vulgar was used to describe poor people and uneducated people so oh, you can see how common it's yeah. common right? yeah, yeah yeah so cunt was a vulgar word used by vulgar people oh, i.e okay. common people and over the years that became you know we don't say that word because vulgar people say it and it just it amplified into we don't say that because it's obscene and and the vulgate means like the common vernacular right that was maybe like, i don't know yeah um, but then like obviously the word vagina comes from i think vagine or something which is a french it's a French, okay. French or, or um, a Latin word. Yeah, I think it means sword sheath as well, which is really weird. <laughs> right. I remember. I remember a, an ex girlfriend would talk about this. How like that then was an act of like disempowering women to be like, "What well, your noun is it something that it has no agency? It just sheaths the male sword." Really, and that that is like a institutionalized sexism or something. <laughs> it could be. I don't I I don't know how much of that was would would have been intentional or, or unintentional, but I can see how that could be the case. So that is and so now saying that word 
is you can't ever say that on the radio because it's this changing of, of how certain things become like a bad word, right? Yeah. What's interesting as well is you, when you hear a word, you, you don't need to know the etymology of it. You can almost feel that it's maybe an, an old Germanic or like a Viking Norse word or, or whether it's a French Latin Romance word. You just kind of feel it. They're a lot softer and different kind of syllables and sounds. Well, but as someone like you and like me who have made our living out of our love of words and language and wordplay and understanding words, maybe we're more sensitive to it than someone who isn't so interested in this stuff. Because I could talk about this stuff with you all day. I love the origins of words. And like, you're right, you get this sense of, oh, that's a word from this culture or last names, you know, oh, that's this kind of name. That's this kind of name. That's like, Words are awesome because they they carry the entire weight of the human history. I love I love um, Scandinavian last names, which is like uh, Anderson, which would literally mean the son of Anders. My real last name is Nielsen. I don't know if you know. Oh that. right, yeah, yeah. And, and it's S E N because it's Danish. So every time people always want to spell it S O N, but it's the son of Neil. You know, yeah. generations ago. Yeah, <laughs> so. it's, it's that even with your spelling, it still means the same thing. Yeah, because yeah. it's the Danish version of it. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting. So Sen in da in Denmark is the son. It's son in Danish, I guess. Sen. Yeah. So my my surname's Bull. Uh, people are sometimes surprised that that's my real name, but my real name is Dan Bull. I was going to ask um, you that. Yeah. Some people say like, "How did you come up with that name?" And I say, "I didn't. My parents did." <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> But, but I'm pretty sure that that sounds to me like it's probably like an Anglo-Saxon word, bull, rather than a French fancy word. What is your family's origin? British? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I looked at my ancestry and um, I did, I signed up to one of those sites where like it pulls everybody's family trees and you can kind of see, you can go really quite far back by sharing your data with other people. Did you send in any DNA or? I did that as well, but yeah. that, that, that is less of a family history and more of like an almost like a race history i guess sure um, it yeah. goes so far back but my my family history appears to be everyone was just based in and around the midlands of britain so no, okay <laughs> no real ambition to move no no social mobility and they were just mostly peasants and farmers and farm laborers um some some people went off to america as lots did but obviously yeah. i'm not descended from that side of the family i'm descended from the ones that stayed here People first came to Britain when? Again, I don't want to talk as an expert on this subject, but I, I think that humans have been here since since prehistoric times. Yeah. Um, and I know that during the Ice Age, Britain was separate. Well, it, even when Britain as a landmass was separate from Europe, during the Ice Age, people could just walk over the ice from France to to um, the UK. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so before the Romans, I think there were various groups like um, Celts and uh, Druids, Picts, Druids. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 back before then, there were there were Neanderthals living here. So it's been a mm. long time of, of human um, settlement. Yeah. In Britain, and that's why there's no, like, some of the bigger animals or or bears and wolves were all killed because. They couldn't coexist with humans. Huh? I guess so. Yeah. I, there, there aren't many natural. Uh, I, I don't think there are any wolves in Britain. Maybe there are. Like the the, the place where you're most likely to find big animals and predators and stuff is way up north in in the Highlands of Scotland. And I guess that correlates with there being fewer humans. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So wait, 
we diverted off this, but um, Goldie looking change. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about how you talked about how that was an amazing detour. <laughs> talking about the human history of Britain and how sometimes some of like the the sadness or the like I don't know. You guys use humor as a way to deal with a lot of a lot of the rubbish things in life, right? And like the thing about Goldie looking chain is like the amalgamation of all these tropes, these British tropes fits in a, in a very funny way, but it's very distinctly something regional, you know, but I, I love both those records a lot. And I just wanted to hear about your connection to that group. <laughs> yeah. So I, before, before they got signed or had, had released those records, interestingly, most of the, or, or maybe even all of those songs on those records are, are remade, like polished studio versions of the ones that I used to listen to. Oh, I didn't know I've, that. I found their website by Googling it. I think I can't remember exactly how I found them, but straight away I was drawn into it because it's because they were funny like they they're not great musicians but there's so much personality and charisma and just just you can tell that when they were making that music they had so much fun and it just shines through and you have fun when you're listening to it yeah it was very raw and like not the best production quality or anything um but I just fell in love with them straight away and it was also like at the time I was really getting into smoking weed and that kind of thing. So that's what I used to listen to Goldie looking chain rapping about smoking really cheap, cheap, like soap. I think it's called soap, soap bar hash. You know, like it would cut you. Not many people or uh, teenagers and school kids would, would smoke actual weed. They'd smoke this like blocks of hash. And so they'd make songs about that. And I'd never even heard like, <laughs> In American hip hop, no one talks about that kind of yeah. thing. They talk about smoking like chronic and stuff. Is so, hash like a fusion? It's like connected with tobacco, or it's just like hash the is, It's a. It's just a cannabis resin that just comes in a brown block. Okay. It just looks like sort like clay. Actually, it looks like yeah. clay. Um, I I haven't smoked weed for a long time now, so I'm I'm behind on like what's <laughs> what's popular in right. in weed culture now. But that's that. It was really interesting to hear them talking about like picking out bits of rubber that were that had been put in the hash to make it way more and stuff. Yeah. Um, it was a very unglamorous description of kind of a mundane lifestyle in a in a fairly inconsequential Welsh town. And uh, a lot of the language, like your missus is a nutter or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I'd have to look up what that meant. They had their, their whole a whole separate slang over there that like I, I didn't understand half of it, but that was part of the joy of it. Again, it yeah. was it was this weird ex new exotic world that I could that I could kind of dive into and, and try and work out what they were saying. And me and my brother like used to just constantly talk to each other in this Welsh accent because of <laughs> we'd been listening to Goldie Looking Chain. <laughs> I won't try and do it now because I I can't really remember how to do it, but um, Did you ever meet them? Have you ever met any of them? Uh I've seen them live but no, I don't think I've ever met any of them. Are they still producing stuff or they all kind of went off? I think, I imagine they are. I think the whole, as a whole, it was never a, a defined group of who exactly was in okay. it and who wasn't. It was kind of, there was probably like a bit like with the Wu-Tang Clan, you've got this like core nucleus of the RZA in the middle and then his closer associates and then it was just sort of. Like Maggot was one of the guys, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I don't know how many people are actually in the group, but I'm, I'm sure some, if not all of them, are still doing stuff. And they would used to play festivals here and stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah. I saw them at um, V Festival, and there was a uh, the crowd was absolutely packed for them, and it was yeah. just it's just a bunch of guys just jumping around on stage, 
Funnily enough, I saw the Wu-Tang Clan and that was exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, they're both really good. On the same festival? Not the same one, oh. but it's it's just funny how that they're like two parallels of the same format of entertainment. Right. <laughs> That's how I would describe them, the, 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 the Welsh Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're a father now. Yeah, yeah. And you have a two-year-old son, is that right? Yeah, George. He's nearly three, actually. So, wow. Yeah. How has fatherhood changed you as an artist? I always was a very disorganized and chaotic person who, um, and I reveled in it. I reveled in being able to do what I wanted when I wanted. I'd just wait for inspiration to strike, whether it was at like 4 a.m. in the morning and then I'd just stay up until 4 p.m. writing and working on the same song. Like, And I thought that's how you had to be as an artist because you were almost um, enthralled to the, the muse and the muse would strike at any time and then that's when you had to work. I also just enjoyed it. I loved... Like I, I even in my in my last album I had a song called Sellout, which is where I was where I was kind of saying explaining why what I'm doing is is not a sellout. Like making money from doing what I want is what I always wanted to do. And and the chorus was like never having to work a nine to five, always being my own manager. So I loved the freedom of it. What being a parent did was made me it brought me outside of myself and realized that, you know, I'm now responsible for and beholden to another person who is is dependent on me to be um, a reliable carer and a, and a provider and things. So I was forced very quickly to get out of that mindset of doing what I wanted when I wanted and having to structure my creativity and the creative process, slotting things into a timeline and things. It was really tough at the beginning, but I'm actually very glad that I was 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 forced into doing that kind of shift in mindset because now I think I'm far more productive than I was before. I've realized that a lot of those things that I used to tell myself were actually mental barriers. Like to be creative, you don't have to wait for inspiration. I can sit down now and just open up a Word document and put, put a beat on. If I'm not feeling creative, I'll start typing and within 10 minutes, I will be will be feeling creative yeah you'll have half a verse yeah 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 so i it, it almost it felt like lots of restrictions and barriers were being placed on me when i first became a parent but i actually realized that it was almost liberating because i realized that i could still be as creative as before but just structure it and uh, around my you know my life and uh, uh, my role as a father and you have this incredible s studio like youtube production space audio space right here in Birmingham. And it's like, you're talking about how you get to come here to work and you're able to be super focused, right? Yeah. I mean, th th this is an example of why I used the word forced before, which sounds bad, like being a parent forced me to do this and, and that. But I, I, I was, uh, I was in my comfort zone recording music at home and everything. And I love being at home and, and sitting in my pajamas and doing what I wanted when I wanted. Right. Um, it became very apparent very quickly. Um, if you spend any amount of time with the toddler, they, they're noisy and they want attention all the time. And that's not compatible with sitting down and focusing, especially with recording music and stuff. So I realized, right, I, I'm going to have to be working elsewhere and my home life will be in one place and my work life will be in another place. Um, so that's how I ended up um, renting this place, which which initially was just going to be my space to, to work on my, my own music. But then... Um, me and my video guy, Nick, we both kind of realized this is actually 
would work so well if we sh we you know invited other people here and collaborated and shared because we're right next to this to one of the main train stations in the UK and stuff. So that this whole world of collaboration and and just bigger things than just me and my own YouTube channel and my wants and needs has opened up. And I think mm. a it's 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 kind of helped me grow up and mature and have a more of an outward approach and look and be more open to things like I, I wouldn't be talking to you here and recording your podcast here if I was still at my house in my pajamas wouldn't, it just wouldn't be happening it's I think that's really cool man so you're saying that like having a kid became this kind of like funnel through which all these new opportunities have been given birth to as well right yeah I think I think when you get comfy you don't really make the most of what you have it's only when like challenges come to you, and and for me, becoming a parent was was a challenge because partly because as well, I mean, I, I covered all this in a song I released called "I'm Going to Be a Daddy," which right. I actually I released April. We're recording this the day after April Fool's Day. I released it on April Fool's Day intentionally because I just wanted to kind of mess with people's heads. But it was a real song where I said like it was about announcing that I that I found out I was going to be a dad and I was terrified uh, and just thought all my thought process about that. So. I gradually... And people thought it was a prank? People thought it was a prank, yeah, just because I released it on the 1st of April. Right. Like, I didn't say, like, I, had, I, n I didn't have any reference to April Fool's Day or anything. I just thought, if I'm going to release this song, I may as well release it on the 1st of April and just, <laughs> just see what happens. So <laughs> for ages, people thought, they did think it was a prank video. And then I made another video later where I, where I introduced, after George was born, I made a video where I unboxed him. <laughs> and um, people were like, oh, so he wasn't, it wasn't an April Fool's joke, or is this also a joke? And it just people got more and more confused. Right. Uh, even <laughs> even yesterday, someone uh, sent me a tweet and they said, "I'm still waiting to find out like whether or not you actually do have a son or not." <laughs> well, now we're saying yeah, the record I'm straight. Like, yeah. <laughs> Unless this is all part of it, you might be in on it. Dan, when you come to work, do you do you leave? Um, does your baby stay home with your partner? Do you have? Do you get a nanny, or how do you like? Uh, yeah. It, um, my girlfriend or my partner Caroline spends so much time with him. She's she does she's really great. She she puts so much effort in with him um, when I'm not here and I'm not around because she understands that you know this is my job as well. That was that was also a diff difficult thing for us to deal with at home was the the boundary between am I at work or am I not at work? Can I can I you know can I come and play and help? Uh, hang out with George or am I supposed to be working whereas here it's very simple if sure. I'm in this building then I'm at work and if I'm at home then I'm then I'm at home um, do you when you're at home do you try to like not be on Twitter and Facebook and stuff you put your devices no, away? I'm, I'm terrible I, I'm still on all the time yeah like, I, I, as I was explaining to you then I just realized that that's not entirely true when I'm at home I'm still at work and like part of my head's still at work right but um, I, I, it's still a lot easier for me to then commit big chunks of time where I can just focus on my son and play with him and enjoy that and not think, oh, my, my computer's just there. I could go and um, I could go and start doing, check my emails and stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, you are one of the most, though, prolific content creators I know. And is it because you, you set like daily, weekly goals for putting stuff out or you just kind of go for it? My, my goal... Generally, is to try and release a new video a week, which doesn't always happen. Some some weeks I don't release anything, or some weeks I end up releasing three things. But mm. I, I like to go with the one a week thing, which is it's very different to what some creators do. Some creators will release like an album every two three years. Sure, but I I think it ties in with the way I like I like working. Um, I like doing things very systematically with like lists, and I like um, 
making things efficient. I, I almost have like a personal factory system now where I where I have like all these different folders and different songs at stages of completion and I work through them and I tick off lists and, and because yeah. of because of my autistic mindset it's really satisfying for me to do that so it, it's almost like I've, I've always got like 50 different songs in the works and they're all just slowly work, moving down this list of like I've got a folder for songs that need mixing and a fol uh, songs that need a video or yeah. further up songs that need an instrumental uh, and, and s gradually everything gets pushed through that list and so I end up being really productive without necessarily intending to. It's just how it happens. It's slow. Your yeah. process. And I always have more ideas than I do uh, time to, to finish them. So it's yeah. never an issue like having something to work on. There's always more things that I need to finish. So the issue becomes when you, when you are able to <laughs> leave this studio, right? When you come, you, the, 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 the finale becomes when you close the door, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you do a video for every single song pretty much? Um, on YouTube, yeah, we don't don't really upload a song unless it doesn't have a corresponding video. Yeah. But the, one of the lucky things about the, the type of music I do is that, like, for example, if it's a song about a game, it's very easy to kind of edit together a video just using trailer footage and stuff of the game. Lately, we've been trying to ramp up our production values a bit and... So we'll mix green screen footage of me or even sometimes location footage with stuff from the game. Sometimes we just make an entirely an entirely original video. Yeah. Um, we're just trying to mix it up, really. But So some videos take a lot more of a uh, time commitment than others, and some are really easy to do. How has YouTube changed in the, in the 15 years or whatever that you've been on it? Like, have you found it's a different beast? Oh, yeah, yeah. I am... Um, it used to be a wild west and very DIY and, and production values. One of the great things about YouTube was that you didn't need great production values. You didn't need the best camera and the best lighting. Um, it was all about if you just had something interesting, people would, would watch it. Now YouTube has become almost as a, as a victim of its own success. It's mm. become a lot more competitive. And because it's become more competitive, everyone's fighting for the audience's attention and watch time naturally those production values are going through the roof so now you do need good lighting you do need good sound you need all that all that stuff to compete with someone else who's got that stuff because if someone else is as, as interesting as a person as you and they've got great light and sound and you don't then they then they're going sure. to get the the audience yeah that's it, partly another reason why i'm interested in 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 setting up the space to help new creators and things because I realized that the that barrier to entry for new people trying to become a, an online creator is probably much higher than it used to be. Yeah. And so having people pitch an idea to me maybe that they that, and they say I've got this great idea but I don't know how to do it or I, I I need this and this equipment they can come and make it here instead of them having to fork out the money and or, or save up and buy it themselves. So it's 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 removing those barriers by pooling resources so what advice then I, I, you probably get asked this a lot in interviews like let's say a, let's say a 17 year old content creator walking here and was like all right dan i'm a big fan of your work what what are the what is a list of things i should be doing every day to try to build a my, my youtube platform that's a good question i think it, it's probably obviously de depending on what content someone makes it's going to be different but the what about so let's say they're a rapper who has like a comic book fandom or a you know what i mean something like that um yeah yeah i guess 
one of the one of the things it would be just to stay engaged with that world that your music is about but if, if you're passionate about that then you will automatically be engaged with it um there's a lot of people who seem to want to make content about something they're not necessarily passionate about mm. because it's a trending or a popular topic and i i tell people don't do that like pick something that you're interested in even if it's a very niche topic and you will become the the expert on that niche and you'll become the influencer on that niche because that's your thing and you're passionate about it there's also less competition for it like if everyone wants to make videos about fortnite on youtube for example your fortnite video is not going to stand out amongst all those other ones right especially and, and if you are not like a, a, a fortnite player then uh, this is hypocritical of me because i made a <laughs> i made a fortnite song with a hundred other people on it and it, it, i don't even play fortnite uh, but you but you dan <laughs> I think something that is a huge asset to you is that since you're so efficient, you get things out first. When a game is announced or a sequel, you're the first person to do like a great video about it. I, I used to be. Uh, yeah. Not it's not that I've become less efficient, but there's a whole there's like a whole new wave, I'd say, of of nerdcore artists have come up on YouTube mm. that now do the do the same kind of thing as me and and their music is a lot more reactive and responsive to news and trailers and things that come out yeah and so now i find like if i if if i've if i start working on a song and i'll, go, uh, I'll google the same a song about the same topic someone will have already done it so i'm very rarely the first person to do it to do that now that's kind of what weird al was telling me about how like when he would try to do a parody he'd, he'd be like when he was trying to do mandatory fun all this YouTube songs people had already done parodies of so quickly, like Thrift Shop, and it was like this period went from like 2011 till 20 to now, where things just are so quick. So it's like you almost have to have a time machine. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's yeah. That uh, Weird Al, Al is a great example of what I was saying. Whereas, you know, he because he almost pioneered that very that niche that he had of doing well produced parodies and remakes of pop songs. He could spend time and. Uh, effort on on making those whereas now it's 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 almost become again like a cottage industry where there's there's a whole bunch of parody channels on there all primed and ready to jump on everything so not every channel is going to respond to every pop song but but from weird else perspective whatever he wants to do someone will have done it before him yeah and and you probably must feel that as someone who raps about games a lot there's a lot of like you said nerdcore rappers who do game raps yeah but I, I've also realized, like, it's not. It doesn't matter. Like, being the first person to do something doesn't matter. Being, um, it's it's more important that yours is, not even more important that yours is the best because it's not. It shouldn't be competitive. But it's just important that you make the best that you can do. It doesn't matter if you make the first thing before someone else. It might it might mean that it gets some more views initially. But then even if you look long term on YouTube at, at content that gets more views is not whatever was published before the other content is content that people keep coming back to that resonates with the high quality of your other stuff. Like I feel like a lot of what I like about your stuff is it's funny, but you also tap into these truths of the characters you rap about and like the existential crises or the things they go through that. I like when I'm writing a literary rap song, I try to tap into that side of things. And yeah, I, I, it's really cool how like your, your fandom of games particularly has this element that is like, Oh, yeah, of course. That's what that character was thinking. Yeah, I really like getting into people and worlds and environments and and that kind of side of things rather than kind of the mechanics of the game. I th I've made a few songs about a specific game where I've just talked about, you know, say for example, a Call of Duty where it's just 
I've got a gun. I'm running around shooting people, and it, it's not very interesting to listen to. No. Whereas you know the thing the thing that we did with the Julius Caesar track that was far more interesting because we we're all looking at the motivations and the world that 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 situation right. happened in. So it's really interesting to a from a writing perspective, and I hope from a listener's perspective that you're hearing that story. My favorite couplet of yours on that song is uh, "Met Caesar on the steps of the Senate, about to free his neck from the liquid within it." It's so <laughs> tight. That's so tight. It always gets stuck in my head, man. Those kind of lines, yeah. I um, I have a love hate relationship with them because it's it's a really forced rhyme. Like steps of the Senate, liquid within it. They barely rhyme with each other. But I like forcing things to rhyme with each other that don't. I don't like common rhymes like. So many songs where people say like maybe and baby and it's been done so many times. Girl I, and world. Yeah, yeah. I guarantee no one's ever rhymed steps of the Senate with a liquid within it. Or 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 I'm Cassius, not quite <laughs> not quite as loyal as Lassie is. That's another one. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That's what that's Emily Dickinson was the queen of of the compound slant rhymes. And and Eminem is and Rakim, like the originators are the people who could make those words work. And you know what I mean? I think that like, yeah, you always want to rhyme things in a surprising way and that's why i like you you as a rapper because it's a little bit like oh i didn't think of it like that. yeah i love trying to do that and sometimes it i'll come up with something that i really like the way it rhymes but then i don't know how it's not really relevant to what i'm writing about and then i think well i guess it could be a punchline to a, like or, or a simile or something and then i have to kind of retroactively work out how this rhyme i've come up with can work really well as a simile or a, as a reference. Sometimes it doesn't, so I scrap it. I used to be really bad at just writing shit, basically, just because it rhymed. And I think a lot of people are guilty of that. Well, and then it's the whole thing of reverse engineering your rhymes to then resonate with the coda of your thesis of the chorus, right? Which is like, for me, that's a great question, man, because it's like, if I want to have a, a complicated reference or some sort of poetic form, like, for me, it's justified if I can make it somehow, you know, bolster the chorus. Right. And the chorus often with a lot of pop culture stuff is just your funny take on what the premise is. And the trick is just as long as it's not, I've talked about this with other rappers on the podcast, as long as it's not the Wikipedia article about the game, as long as it's something different, you can, I think, get away with those puns or, you know what I mean? The surprising twist. I think actually they're an asset when you kind of derivate from the path, as long as it's not completely left field. <laughs> Yeah, you know? I, know, I do have a different approach when I when I write choruses. Although, to be honest, like I get a lot of criticism from people saying my choruses are the weak points in my song, but I'm always trying to improve them. But I have a different attitude when I write choruses where it's maybe a bit more poetic and metaphorical. I'm not trying to necessarily come up with a punchline or a direct reference to anything. It's more about the mood and the feel or perhaps the, the subtext of what I think that person's story might be about. That's and, good. And then in the verses, I get far more explicit and specific about about certain uh topics within it have you i know we're running long i'll wrap it up in a sec but what is have you ever had any um like gamer creators who or companies who reached out to you and were like wow that was fantastic thank you for that yeah yeah it, it happens uh quite often actually um and what's interesting is uh, that one of, one of the first times it happened was do you know the game dishonored i've heard of it i've never played it it was it was um, a new franchise that came up. Well, it was at the time um, when I made the song about it, and no one else had made any kind of fan content around it because it mm. was brand new. And, so, and then I made this uh, this song about it, and because they had 
been working on it for like however many years game studios work on these AAA titles and they'd been you know been under a non-disclosure agreement and they had no feedback or anything on the game whatsoever but apart from their own colleagues mm. when they when they saw the this fan song that I'd done about it they they loved it so much and they invited me to come down and like um see them at this uh, event and I got a picture with the guys who developed the games and things and they were they were fanboying over me. It was it right. was crazy. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> but obviously that that doesn't necessarily happen with uh, with you know when you're making a, a song about maybe again Call of Duty twelve like they don't probably care very much because there's already right. a huge fan base around it. Well, that's an that's an example. That's a great intersection of being first and like working with a smaller development company, right? Like that they were really it's like a reciprocated fandom. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting as well. I think um, carrying on from that, if I'm if I make music that is about like an, an indie title or something that's you know got a lot less money or backing behind it, and it's just a passion project of a game developer, if you make some fan content around that, they really they really appreciate that and it, they they feel validated by it because they've put work into it. They put it out there in the world, and people are responding to it. I'm sure in, in a lot of ways, your channel is so big that you help s with sales and stuff to a degree, I imagine. I hope so, because I mean, I, I've done some various marketing uh, branded videos with games companies. So I guess that they, if they want to hire somebody to make a video about their game, they're expecting that it'll influence people to then buy that game. Otherwise, they're just giving me some money for nothing. <laughs> yeah. So it is working. Yeah. That's cool. Um, your primary platform, would you say, is your YouTube channel? Yeah, I'm trying to slowly change that a little bit because I just realized YouTube's so volatile, um, I don't want to rely on it too much. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to expand now towards Twitch and um, not even necessarily just platforms, but I want to go and do more events and things. I, I mentioned earlier I don't like really performing on stage live, but I love doing like fan meetups and events like that kind of thing um youtube so youtube is volatile in that it's like the monetization is changing and it's more competitive or yeah and also there's a, a new law that's just been put past called uh, article 13 i don't know if you've heard much about it yeah. but it's it's making uh copyright protection a lot stricter online i'm not exactly sure how it'll be enforced but um in my experience as a, as a diy creator copyright has usually been troublesome rather than helpful to me mm -hmm. um it's usually just put more barriers and obstacles um especially with things like content id on youtube so many videos have been flagged in uh, incorrectly false positives and things sure so i'm not i'm just not confident about the future of any single platform so i want to make sure my I, i'm on all sorts of platforms N and not only just me either i want to, to do a lot more collaborating and work with other artists i used to work on my own in my bedroom for years just making my own music and I didn't want to collaborate or work with anyone else yeah. I wanted it to be proof that everything that you heard on that record came from me and I was quite egotistical about it mm -hmm. but and that that, that that is fun but it's also a lot more fun to you know meet up with someone else and get their perspective and, and you both chip in and bounce off each other I want to do a lot more of that kind of thing that's cool yeah. and so so working with other artists using other platforms and just staying what positive creative person that got got you to this point those are those are all those three things will keep you successful yeah that, um yeah. you you asked me about about what advice i'd give to someone and i think that's yeah. it it's it's be, be adaptive and responsive and flexible do something that you're 
genuinely passionate about. Don't just try and jump on a popular bandwagon. Um, and make. Uh, I think it's more important that you enjoy it than that, that you necessarily get successful from it. Like, there are downsides to being a full-time professional musician as well as upsides. Sure. Rather than a hobbyist. Like, hobbyists have a lot more creative freedom. They don't have to worry about whether this next video is going to alienate the audience and not, and they won't get the same paycheck they got the previous month. They can do whatever they want. Right. I'm not saying that it's that it's um, better to necessarily be a hobbyist or that, my, that like the position I'm in is bad. I absolutely love it. But there are benefits to both of those positions that you're in. How do you stay in love with music then? How do you stay like passionate about music? <laughs> I always have been, and I yeah. just feel like I always will be. Like yeah. ever since I was a kid, I just loved music. I loved. I I had a little um, dictaphone which I used to record like weird voices and comedy sketches with my friends, um, and then that escalated. We got a camcorder and did the same things. Always did music. I just feel like it's it's just part of who I am. So I don't really worry about that. I don't right. worry about, Oh, do I like music anymore? Or will I like music in five, 10 years? I just, I can't imagine getting to a point where it's not, that's, that's not who I am. That's the jet fuel of all this. Yeah. <laughs> you must be the same, right? It takes, it takes a lot of commitment. Like you're on tour now traveling around the world and stuff, which is obviously fun, but it's, it's a big commitment. Yeah. And if I weren't, that's interesting. You said that. if I weren't like, you know, this tour is, celebration it's like a, i'm doing most of my my robot kills album which was like my second album and it's like playing there's a band from newcastle ruled by raptors they've learned my set and they've learned learned the album so playing with a band playing these old songs with a different band is really fun because i always love doing love music but i especially love it when i'm able to like perform or do it in a different way like writing new music or collaborate collaborating with different people you know what i mean and I feel like I'll never get tired of that. And I'm thankful for that. But if I ever do, it's not the end of the world. I have other skills, but, I, I, and I don't fear that that will happen, but because I don't think it will, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have that in common. But you're right. It's not, it's not like if you stop, if you stop enjoying it, then all you need to do is just segue into a different career. You probably picked up lots of skills through your career as a musician that you can then apply to something else. And same with you too, yeah. right? It's like being organized, social media, marketing, collaborating. I think my strongest asset is I love to work with different people and the different people I've had on my records over the years. It's like impressive that they would say yes to do it, and, and including you and people like you and people like like Weird Al and, and like this album I just did with Megaran. Like I love being able to push myself in a new way working with different people. And that's fun because I love the friendships that come from this journey. You know, that's that's important. Because, you know, I was middle school and stuff. In high school, I was hard. I was lonely. And it was like, it was a weird time that discovering hip-hop and starting to collaborate, and especially my time in England as an undergrad, you know, a sophomore year, I was here for part of sophomore year. It changed my world because I met all these people who were kind of like me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I went to university and I didn't enjoy it. I, I, I studied music technology at uni, but I still didn't enjoy it because I just, the, the, the other people still weren't like me. And the, the only time when I really found people that shared exactly the kind of approach and attitude I had was, was the internet. So the internet's been a huge help for me. Yeah. And I want to make sure that I kind of pay it forward now. And, and if there are other people that share those kind of interests and want to do the same kind of thing, I want to find out who they are and work with them. So this space is super cool that that wherever wherever you end up or whatever you do you'll you'll be in that producer 
role, even like a managerial role in a way, right? Like managing the projects in a way. I'm a, I'm aware of the fact that I'm getting older as well, and, that, and yeah. I won't always necessarily have the same alternate nerd coolness, let's say, or, or clout. Um, when I'm a middle-aged guy, I want to make sure that I'm still in this world, but I'm not desperately trying to cling on to something that maybe would have been better served to me when I was younger. Well, And that's why guys like Dre and and even the tech, like startup incubator people, they, they recognize that too, I think, and they want to work with the other artists. And it's also, cool. it's also, as you progress uh, and reach different kind of parts of your life, I think it's better to embrace them rather than trying to cling on to your youth. And like sometimes you, you see like a middle-aged 50, 60-year-old guy who still thinks he's a teenager. Like mm. he'll, he'll have gone gray and he'll have dyed his hair completely black. Uh, and and I don't know, like I don't want to judge people on appearances, but it shows that they're kind of clinging to something that's not there anymore. Instead of going, okay, I'm fifty, sixty, I can enjoy this part of my life by doing this kind of stuff. Well, that's a, that's a very profound like insight, and I think that's me musically. It's something that I've wrestled with. Like when I got my start, it was all about like sampling the pop punk bands and parroting the emo stuff and doing that and this. And so then the second like part of my career was about doing like the literary rap or doing like the educational stuff and that uh, parroting this one subgenre of music that I liked or be was part of, I couldn't do that forever because yeah. it wasn't as, it wasn't as relevant as when I was in my twenties. And you didn't, I think some people end up growing bitter about how times changed. If what they, you know what I'm saying? If what made them dig doesn't keep them growing as much. So you have to be adaptive. I don't want to be that guy. It's very yeah. easy to fall into that trap where you just complain that, that um, the world is different to how it was when it, it most benefited you. <laughs> right. It's more reasonable that you need to change rather than that the entire world needs to change back to how it benefited you the most. And that's what, uh, I, I, like going back to the gamification comment you made early, at the beginning of this podcast is like, well, you got to be flexible and you got to feel realize how you're going to hack the next level as, the, as, so to speak, the world changes. You have to level up too, right? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's an exciting challenge. So I want to make sure I'm kind of looking out for the, the next big shift in whether it's, you know, a new platform that people use or a new type of content that exists. Like I'm really interested in uh, technologies like VR and um, neural networks. And, and one thing that's, that really interests me that I, that I haven't seen much of yet, but computers are now learning how to be creative. Like they can apply mm. artistic styles from a painting onto a picture. And that is also slowly seeping into music. And I'm really interested in seeing how computers end up being creative with music and right. that is an entirely new world that like i don't know anything about yet but i'm really excited to look into and then that's interesting curating a, a project a computer does that then gives it a human element based on how you've edited or selected pieces that it's created yeah it's yeah. pretty interesting <laughs> yeah i already do quite a bit of that with like i've got an app on my phone called pixar which is which transfers uh styles artistic styles to pictures and stuff. So I'm always messing with that. And, and you can choose like different, um, I don't know the proper names of the artistic styles, but you've got like Renaissance painting style and anime style. And, and it, it, it it's not just a filter that goes over the top of the picture. It, it recreates that picture in that style. Wow. It's crazy. And wow. I'm just, I, I get giddy with excitement when I think of how you, how when AI gets more advanced, how it can apply that to music. Like you could import a Beatles song in say, to the computer, import the Beatles song, um, but play it in the style of Nirvana. 
Right. And the computer will take the tone and the sound of that of Nirvana and apply it to the chords and the melodies of the Beatles, and it'll do it all automatically. That like, I get goosebumps when I think about that kind of thing. <laughs> Other people might get scared of it and say it's going to take the human element out of creativity. There will always be a human element, though, as long as there are humans. Yeah, and as humans either creating or appreciating it. Right. When something is so digital. What it reflects about humanity has more of a pure essence, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there's always there, there will be luddites who are scared of new technology and changes and things, but there will also always be people working out how to get creative and experimental with it. I want to be on that side, and that's uh, why it's cool. We were born when we were right, living in these times. Yeah, yeah. What? Um. So Dan, what? It's it's Dan Bull on Twitter. Is that? Yep. Where people can follow you there? Yep. It's a, a, I did it intentionally as a pun on Istanbul, but people don't realize that. You don't, uh, there are so many people. Oh, I just got it. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are so many people that go, uh, oh, your name sounds like Istanbul in, t- in Turkey. Or, they, or they'll say, Istanbul, not Constantinople. I'm like, that, that was the joke. I, I'm starting to regret this pun now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not the same on Instagram, right? It's not the same. It's oh. not the same. Uh, I wish it was. Uh, so I was late to Instagram because I, I, I basically sulked because someone else had taken that name. Um, but then I, I ended up giving it and created one. But it's Istanbul, which so I-N-S-D-A-N-B-U-L-L. So that's a pun on a pun. That's good. <laughs> and then um, your YouTube channel is just Dan Bull. He's easy to find. Yeah. If you open YouTube and type my name in, it should hopefully, if YouTube's doing its job... <laughs> <laughs> my videos should come up and, and not reaction videos or anything else. So that's good. Well, hopefully they will. Then you'll continue to give them more content. And um, hopefully we'll, you'll be, are you coming to the show tonight just to hang out at least? Or I may do. I okay. may do. Again, it's uh, the, the parent side of me needs to go and, and work out what I can do. I'm also not very well. So we'll see. You're, we'll see what happens. I'd love to come see you though. You're invited though, but I totally understand if you can't make it. Yeah, yeah. This has been great. Thank you, Dan. I was about to say you need to you need to plug where your show's going to be, but this is not a live. <laughs> There's not Sunfl- much time. Well, it was at Sunflower Lounge in Birmingham the first time we played there, and show was great. Hey, <laughs> hopefully it was great. Hopefully I'm still alive. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh no, okay. this could be awkward. Okay, well, thank you, Dan. Thank you.
The song was called This Pig by Matron's Apron. You can find it on Dan Bull's channel. That was his first band he talked about. And one of the members is now a philosophy professor at Oxford, so they don't tour so much. But I thought that was cool to end with that. It's a vegan anthem. So, Dan, thank you very much. Oh, shoot. You know what we have right now? Yeah, get ready for it. This is the first incarnation of the Patreon fan of the, of week. the week. We got Malachi. This is a dude from Missouri. He's been a fan for a long time, supportive guy. I met him years ago on the MC Chris tour, and he calls in and tells one of his stories. So Malachi, take it away. All right. Hey, yo, Lars, this is Malachi. The first song I ever heard of yours was Original Gamer. A year after that, I had gotten my diagnosis for the brain tumor, and a couple of months after that, I was at your first concert, but when I emailed you, you would email me right back. And when I met you face-to-face for the very first time, you gave me the biggest hug, and you asked me how my health was. And every concert I saw you after that, you always asked me how my health was. You have no idea how much your music has helped me grow and get inspiration and strength where I didn't have it or I didn't think I have it or had it where I needed it and when I needed it. Your music has helped me find bravery and courage. And I am so grateful that you even took the time to email me back when I was in the hospital, scared out of my life, getting testing done. You have become one of the biggest, biggest influences in my life, homie. And I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for that day. My best friend walked into my house and said, I have a song by this dude, MC Lars original gamer you need to hear since you are a gamer yourself if it was not for him i would not have the friendship i have in you thank you for your time homie much clown love woo 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 back to you malachi it's a very touching story and i do remember that and i'm glad you're doing well so everyone listening malachi is cancer free and uh, whenever he rolls through the show, he's always such a big, inspiring dude. So Malachi, yo, you get a free shirt, I'm going to send you one ASAP. If you want to be on the podcast and tell a story of how you discovered my music or a concert or something like that, sign up on the Patreon. We will hook it up. You get the special phone number. 
you get the free t-shirt if I uh, use your call, and uh, that is awesome. We are going to end with a little snippet. Like I said, there are tons and tons of songs on Patreon that you get access to. This is a song that I did with Tribe One. It's called Cautiously Optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. I'm just going to play a snippet of it. I want to give you an example of the type of songs you'll hear. We wrote this when Out of the Shadows came out or was about to come out, which was the sequel to the Michael Bay Ninja Turtles. And we kind of battle about if it's going to be good or not. So uh, so one of the songs you'll check out. Next week, we got Matt Sankum, who started The Hard Times, which is a very funny, awesome humor site. He's a Bay Area dude. I went up and saw him in Pacifica when I was in California. And uh, so tune in next week. But here's a snippet of one of the jams on Patreon. Thanks, Dan, for being on the episode. And I will see y'all next week. Hope you're all having a good summer. Okay, peace. Bye. Now, I'm a fan of Ninja Turtles, just not on inspired remakes, especially when the source material really could be great. And 10 bucks a pop is not exactly a cheap date, unless they're offering back a rebate. And if it's a box office flop, they'll stop with this awful business, because you've always got the option not to go cop the tickets. I'll wait to hear if it's good, and if not, then I'll probably skip it. I honestly want it to be, but I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm VHS and DVD and Blu-ray, yes, it's true. I bought Ninja Turtles 1, I bought Ninja Turtles 2, I bought Ninja Turtles 3, where they traveled to Japan. A disappointing sequel for the critics and the fans, but Out of the Shadows is looking hella rad though. Rock Daddy is back with Bebop, ready for the battle. With Crank Shredder and Baxter, well the previews are incredible. I'm camping out, I'm first in line, I hope it's unforgettable. Cautiously optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. Cautiously optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. Cautiously optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. Cautiously up.